Hi, everyone. This is Mary Beth Hunter with the fifth episode of the Better Conflict Bulletin's podcast, The Transformers, where we speak with people who are working on making the American conflict better. We'll include peace builders who are mediating difficult conversations between red and blue, teachers training their students in conflict skills, journalists who are committed to being trusted by all sides, and technologists asking what platforms can do to help. Today, we are speaking with a pioneering figure in conflict transformation, Dr. Catherine Barnes, who has worked with many human rights organizations, including the United Nations and the Conciliation Resources and Minority Rights Group International. She is a trainer, consultant, teacher, and author, currently at work on a book called Ending Our Addiction to Coercion, Understanding Conflict, Habituated Systems, and How to Transform Them. She shares her experiences of working around the world to facilitate community dialogue and peaceful solutions. Here, she shares her wisdom gathered from a lifetime of bridging and peace building. Tell us about your background and how that has become part of your work in peace building. Lots of different chapters, as I guess in many lives. I was raised as a Quaker, and as a Quaker, part of the core tenant is it's a peace church, nonviolent, but also very much focused on consensus and non-coercive methods, and had worked much more as an activist early on and as a social worker as well. And then in the early 90s, I was among the first to go into the field from an academic perspective and got my master's and then my PhD in conflict analysis and resolution from George Mason University. And do you prefer the term peace building rather than bridging or conflict transformation? I probably most identify as a peace builder. That's where what I'd say would be the context that I've come from, dialogue facilitator in that sense, and with the goal a lot of times for transformation. How did you become involved in the Conciliation Resources and Minority Rights Group International? My PhD was actually around genocide in the 20th century and comparative study of that. And so this was very consistent with my interest in these kinds of totalizing inter-identity group conflicts. The approach that minority rights group tended to do was research and advocacy. And I think I always felt more drawn to what are the processes of bringing people together, including those who have taken up arms and organized armed violent conflict, how to bring them together to find some way of shifting the conflict system that has led to so much violence and hatred to find a way forward. I found myself gradually moving more and more into a focus on peace processes and what are all the conditions in which we can imagine peace processes, not only about negotiating the spoils of war, but actually creating pathways towards transformation and addressing the underlying grievances and injustice that give rise to war. That's a little difficult for the American mind to understand. Where do you start in the peace building process? A lot of times it's about the groups that have mobilized and organized themselves to wage conflict through violent means, engaging them. Because very often when people do take up arms, it's because they do have some kind of change that they're wanting to bring about. How 
can they begin to conceive of other pathways for achieving goals through engaging with their enemies? And what would it mean to come together to figure that out? But not just those that have taken up arms. I think often there are many other groups, including those who may identify on the same side, we put in air quotes, but who actually have not chosen to take up arms or feel that a peaceful path is going to be the better way forward, or those voices that don't get marginalized through the war. And how can they also have a seat at the table? Often what happens in war-torn societies is that part of the peace means the basic system of how power operates stays in place. It's just a new set of people who are wielding it. And so how to change the rules of the game so that it's more responsive and equitable for all the people of the country. So a lot of my work was around helping people with thinking that through, also learning lessons from how people had done it elsewhere, in skilling and enabling people to better negotiate and to engage in dialogue to, to more deeply understand what it was that's motivating each other so as to find where are those spaces of common ground and what are the things that need to be negotiated. When it seems that polarization is threatening to boil over and there are some people arguing that's where we are in the United States, what's the best way to prevent violence mm. from erupting? This is a really complex challenge and we're all trying to figure this out. And I think there are many different strategies. And in terms of preventing violence, that's one set of, of strategies that may be alongside approaches which are dealing with the underlying causes of polarization. A lot of the work that I am doing now is addressing more the social aspects of it, the sense of, of anger and frustration and rupture in communities that feel that the other side, once again in air quotes, is not is increasingly the problem and how to prevent a kind of environment, a community context in which people might imagine that just engaging shouting and disrespectful engagement and maybe for some small number of people that might be a justification for taking up arms and certainly the mobilization of hatred, the mobilization of grievance as a way of justifying armed conflict. I think that there are obviously fears in many parts of the country right now that can be happening. And certainly there's a lot of evidence in terms of shootings that people are turning that path. I think the majority of people don't want that to happen though. And so the question is how to empower and enable people to come together to feel like actually, hey, we are one community, we are one society, we need to find respectful, peaceful constructive ways of working together. And that's more and more where my work is now. I'm from the States. I'm from rural Virginia. And having a child later in life, my husband is a Londoner and we had been living in East London and I miss the mountains. <laughs> I'm a mountain girl. We both wanted our son to be able to have the opportunity to be in a, a smaller community. It's been a good move for us and my family's here. And it's been interesting coming back to the U.S. moved back in, in 2011 after almost 17 years out of the country. And things had changed a lot in some respects. Some things were very consistent with where things were before, but I think I'd certainly noticed, especially in contrast to some of the other places that had been living, how few common institutions were left where all Americans could feel that there was a shared public space. And interestingly, right now I'm working with public schools, and I think in some ways public schools has been one of the areas where 
that actually had continued, although it's localized, it's not a national institution. But I do feel that the breakdowns in communication spaces have really enabled this polarization. What does that mean for us now that in a lot of ways chose our own fragmentation through social media and the way mm-hmm. we get our news? I think you're right that social media and also the mainstream media spaces have got much more divided. When I left, Dan Rather was still the person who many people were listening to most nights or the network news was still very much of a feature of life. And as you say, as people have gone into their own information spaces, that has, I think, enabled a lot of misunderstandings to build up. The filter that comes from what's happening in social media spaces means that their perception of the other, however, whoever that other may be, is very flattened. One of the things that dialogue enables is this dehumanization and a complexification of what it is people care about and are concerned about. So in our locality in Virginia, schools, public schools have become a major site of community level conflict. Schools are what people really care about deeply. They love their children. They love their schools. They want the best for their children. They want the best for their schools. They want the best for the community, which is enabled by strong schools. Often people seem to be really bewildered by why the other thinks and believes what they want. When they actually sit down and start talking together, they realize that, oh, actually, you know what? There's a lot that we share in common. There's some things that people really still disagree on, but they realize that there may be ways that schools, for example, can actually help to manage those dilemmas and those tensions between the different values that people have. And there's a whole different way of engaging that begins to happen. And one of the things that I have seen, and I've seen this across political and ethnic identity spectrums, is the way in which people are yearning for being able to have respectful conversations. And the fear that people have, the kind of angry, hate-filled and hateful public talk, whether it be virtually on social media or in public meetings, and feeling like, wait a minute, what are we doing? People don't like it. My experience thus far has been that when people have a chance to sit down and talk in a normal human way, often they feel hopeful and then they start feeling empowered that actually we don't have to go down this road of tearing ourselves apart as a community. We can work together to figure this out. And all the things that we had feared about the other, some of them may be true, and we can live with that. We have misled ourselves into believing that the other is the demon that we imagine them to be. And that's being in places where that's happening can feel incredibly resonant and hopeful and the sense of people saying, wait a minute, we want to reactivate our public spaces as being for all the public. And it's small and it's not fully tested, but I do think it's possible. And that reminds me a lot of dialogues that I've done in war-torn societies as well. You have to have a strongly held space for those dialogues to happen. But when it does, people start taking responsibility for it themselves and start wanting more. Mixing and being heard and the desire to speak reasonably is something that's cross-cultural. So how then do you answer the criticism that some have that, hey, what this group over here 
is thinking and saying is hateful, is destructive to society, that person should not be platformed. They should be cast out from polite society and from having any form of communication. Who is beyond the pale? (laughs) And I think that there's one thing which is amplifying hate speech. And I think that hate speech is deeply destructive. And this is one of the reasons why in entering into dialogue space, having really clear communication agreements where that is not going to be tolerated, that you have to speak for yourself from your own experience, avoiding buzzwords, sharing your own story, listening respectfully. All of these things are setting up a different kind of rules by which people need to agree to engage within those spaces. And I have often experienced both in my recent work in the US, but also internationally, that it is also true that those who may seem beyond the pale, that those who are spewing hate speech can, in the right conditions and with great care, can, when treated with dignity themselves, can begin to shift out of the space where they are. I think there's a lot of caveats to this, because this is often people who are acting as private citizens and who actually care deeply about the things that they are concerned by, but are not necessarily, how do you say, the politicians and people like that who may have a number of other interests that are at work. I'm talking here mostly about ordinary people, even ordinary people who are leaders in their group. So I think that space is something a little bit different and a little bit special, out of which may grow a potential for a different kind of discourse. And I do think we do have to separate that out from people who are engaging in hate speech. So in this sense, it's saying that people are redeemable, potentially, if they act in a way that is respectful. And so not to exclude people solely on the basis of their past behavior, if they are willing to re-engage in a new way. That being said, if there are people who have been traumatized by the hateful behavior of the past, I'm very careful about bringing them together. There has to be some level of acknowledgement and even atonement. That is also possible if you have it through a restorative justice framework. So I think we do have to be careful not to re-traumatize people who have already experienced severe harm. On the other hand, it is also true that I would not exclude people on the basis of hate speech in the past, but it has to be in a very carefully constructed conditions and with consent. What can we do when we run into situations where peace and justice seem to pull in different directions? That is the biggest conundrum, isn't it? one of the biggest conundrums. And the thoughts around transformative justice are often about an awareness of the interdependence that we all have one way and another in this world that we share together. And so we can look at the lessons that have come from the wisdom of many in African cultures and Ubuntu, this awareness of interdependence. And if we start from a foundation of recognizing we are interdependent in one way and another, then that means that somehow we will not be able to achieve justice only by strategies based on, say, locking up or punishing those who have committed injustice. At some point, if we're needing to transform that system, there have to be ways of figuring out together how to move forward. And often that does mean that those who have been especially involved in hate and committing 
crimes, committing harm, need to also be able to acknowledge and atone for the harm that they have perpetrated. And it's amazing, we can think of countless examples of where that is possible. I think the potential, and I don't want to be naive about this because it is a potential that it is not always achieved and it's a potential that often takes a long time to manifest. But the potential of these more dialogic processes that are based on relationship or centered in relationship and centered in dignity and respect at their foundation and have a potential to create a pathway towards justice which doesn't mean that there doesn't need to be structural change or a real material world things that are done differently and practical ways of making amends for harms that have been caused. But I think the notion that we can just cut out those who are maybe seen as being the source of hatred and harm and just say, forget it, we're going to lock you up or defeat you, I think we'll never get to that point of having a really fuller, more complete and whole notion of justice. It sounds like even though there are a lot of commonalities in these situations, the person who has done the wrongdoing needs to acknowledge that and perhaps there needs to be some restoration. But it also sounds like the humiliation ritual that we have in American society. You offended someone, you're banned from Twitter, you need to apologize and go away for a while. And then you resurface a couple of years later. It sounds like <laughs> that we, we need a healthy balance between people acknowledging what they've done wrong and having this fall into a ritual. And it sounds like it is never a one size fits all situation. And that's a more healthy way to look at it. And I think that you can also, and I think you may be alluding to certain things, especially coming out of Me Too and in other contexts where there's almost a performance of apology without the transformation actually happening. And I think that's one of the things that we have to be really careful about. (laughs) Because where do people go then if they're banned? What else comes out of that time when they're in purgatory and are maybe mobilizing with others that share the beliefs and come back stronger? And that seems to see what we so often find. And that's these dynamics of backlash that seem to keep coming over and over again. Your perspective is very much needed because it can be difficult for American audiences to understand different cultures and how conflicts might be passed down and they might be ground into a Mm -hmm. culture. And so what do Americans need to understand about these long-term international conflicts that we are not a part of? If you turn the dial back far enough, you'll often find that the U.S. does have some level of involvement. Sometimes I think we would be better off if we did more fully acknowledge and understand the role of what is being done in our name. You're exactly right that most places, people's memories are long and stories get passed down from one generation to the next. And that can be in the effect of direct traumagenic experiences, but also of narratives of suspicion, of hatred, or of we are better than, we are less than. Honestly, I think we have that in this country as well. We can understand that very well. And I think particularly if you are someone who's coming from an Indigenous American or an African American perspective, your sense of history and how long things go back and how deeply rooted they are can be quite different than people who are 
white identified in this country. And I think it's much the same in other societies as well. I think one of the things that is really important is that we have, and what I think many societies are looking towards is a kind of rule of law in institutions that are strong enough to be able to manage those tensions and to make sure that you do have everybody having a more equitable access to the institutions of the state and of society. For other countries, but I think also for our own country, that there is so much about our history that we never tend to or address. And I can speak for myself. I was born in 1965 in Richmond, Virginia. I was a part of the very early generations of children entering very recently desegregated public schools. And what I know is that we never talked about it. We never talked about what had happened. And it's entirely possible to grow up in my generation of white Americans, never having known even that four years earlier, the same building that I was in was a segregated school, not having any framework for understanding the significance and nature of change that happened and unspoken in not necessarily my household, but in my broader community. But you can be sure people knew (laughs) what was happening. The adults knew older students knew, and that this knowledge was also internalized within communities and has continued to come out and be a source of ongoing conflict. And right now, in the state where I am, there is a huge conflict around teaching our history, around what is history, how does it get taught. And I think this notion of what are the narratives we have about the past and keeping them very simple in a way, doesn't serve us well in terms of our ability to really know each other's lives or to make a better world together. And this is true in other countries as well. Why don't you think anyone wanted to talk about that? First of all, I think that a lot of people didn't know how. I'm a white identifying Virginian, and I think that there's a lot of folks in the white community, versus many of whom felt defeated because segregation was seen as imposed from outside. And I think there's a lot of people just did not, a lot of adults just did not know how to talk about it. And there wasn't the vision around having spaces or curriculums or ways to enable people to talk about it. And then, of course, if you were an African-American student, let's say, who was entering into those spaces for the first time, I'm sure a tremendous feeling of vulnerability. And unless there was a safe way in which you could express yourself, I'm sure that there was a lot of things like bullying and and disrespect and possibly worse that was happening. And I know that now, but as a child, I could be insulated from it. It really varied how the adults dealt with it at the time. And then by the time we were coming to, say, like the 1980s, I think that there was, or late 70s, there was a kind of desire to just move on forward and, and see that all as some past that was no longer relevant. And of course it is, and it continues to haunt us. It continues to haunt us and continues to manifest in different forms today. Do you feel that guilt plays a part in a situation like that? And how does that act with its ability mm-hmm. to be coercive? Yeah, I think it does. I think it does. And I think one of the things that I understand 
now as being a concern of a lot of mostly white identifying parents and families is that they're fearful that their children will be made to feel like they're bad people on the basis of their race, racial identity, their racialized identity, and don't want their kids to do that. Nobody would want their kid to feel that way. I wouldn't want my child to feel that way. And so better not to talk about it. And I'm sure everybody has a complex mix of feelings. I know I certainly, even if I wouldn't say that, okay, I am responsible for everything that happened, I'm very well aware that I'm a beneficiary. And I have felt guilty, and that's a really uncomfortable feeling. And yet to not address it is to to leave this wound that is an open wound that I think exists in the collective psyche of our country. And to me, it's like anything when we've been in conflict or have had difficult things and we can clear it and then we can get into a healthy place where we can move forward together. This works best when it's done with love and acknowledgement and respect for the dignity of every human being. And if we can create spaces and processes for doing that, then I think everybody feels safer for moving forward with the really difficult things that we have to deal with. Your work with the Conciliation Resources and Minority Groups International addresses conflict like this. So what can we learn from it, from the American conversation? I haven't worked there for quite some time. Certainly with Minority Rights Group International, what it was doing was saying there are international treaties and conventions and standards that all of the countries, including the United States, have signed up to for the rights of religious, ethnic, racial, linguistic minorities, as well as for indigenous persons. And those standards are things that we should be living into as well. I know a lot of times, a lot of Americans don't think, I don't know, a kind of form of American exceptionalism that these standards somehow don't apply here, but they do. And I think that, that can provide a framework, for example, on language rights. We navigate all the linguistic diversity that we have in this country and the, say, the status of Spanish as a language and use in the country. There's international standards that address those questions. With conciliation resources and a kind of a peace-building approach, I think also that a lot of times the things are right as well. And a lot of times there are the notion that we have to engage with the societal dimensions of conflict and creating conditions in the societal dimensions, as well as dealing with the political aspects of conflict. And I think right now in the States, a lot of the focus is on the political, and that is right. But I think we perhaps focus sufficiently on our social and community context, which is in a way what sometimes fuels some of the more extreme vitriol in our politics. And so I think that's another principle that's quite important, that unless you also are supporting healthy, constructive engagement within our communities and written large, we will lose our resilience as a society to deal with the challenges we face. How do you define coercion? Sometimes people confuse competition with coercion. I think competition can be really healthy and good. My son's an athlete, and I see how being in a competition with a team or as an individual runner really pushes him to do his best, and that pushes others to do their best as well. Competition can be healthy. Cooperation can be great. We have so much more to gain if we work together and if we have the trust to enable that cooperation. 
coercion in a way is something different. Coercion is this notion of this belief that I can't get what I want if you get what you want. And because I want what I want, I'm going to do whatever I need to do in order to get it. And I'm going to force myself, whether through political, economic, emotional, or sheer physical coercion to get my way. There is coercion that exists in our schools. There's coercion that exists in our police force, that exists in our military. And in our legal system, our notion of dealing with justice a lot of times is very unilateral. The state will decide, often with very little interest of the victims themselves being a part of the process, and will apply and coerce the behavior in punishment, a system principle of coercing others. And the more that things don't seem to be going the way we want, the more intense become the efforts of coercion. So part of the transformation, I believe, is actually, first of all, beginning to recognize how much we are reliant on coercion, how many of our institutions are reliant on coercion. And one of the things that often happens is this disregarding of the intrinsic value and dignity of others and a kind of a unilateralism of I'm do what I need to do to get what I need done, disregarding the value and need of others. And so if we see that as a consistent approach in our responses and how we react to things, we can begin to start saying, women, are there some other ways that we can begin to shift out of that model? So I mentioned the justice system. And I think that the approaches of restorative justice that are increasingly in some communities more and more are starting to be woven into that of a very different way of conceiving how do you respond to harm? So I think that if we start to think more about if we recognize our interdependencies with each other, if we recognize each other's dignity, we can sit and we can work out cooperative mutual gains type of approach or a transformation of the relationships in which harm has occurred, the behavior that we find so egregious, we have to figure out some other approach of engagement. And this is not to say we don't need the police. I am not saying that. I think that it can be necessary, but is relying on sheer coercion in the first instance always the most efficacious way? I think almost everybody would agree that no, it isn't. That's a very interesting transformational way of thinking about this. Because for example, if you grew up in America, you're just used to it. That's just how it is. So how does addiction become part of this cycle and part mm. of this cycle? Because sometimes it feels addictive. How many wars on do we have? So the war on drugs, we see how effective that's been. And the war on crime, the war on... And this notion of war and this notion that if we just mobilize more, more coercion, stronger coercion, we will be victorious. If you have a, a chemical addiction, it's like you're starting to feel the pain of withdrawal or depression of angst, whatever it is that is is motivating you. And so you say, okay, I just need more of this chemical to try numb that back out again. And yet the more numbed out you are, the more problems you end up having. And I think sometimes that is also the case with our addiction to coercion, that we think that we just need to mobilize more resource around strengthening our ability to coerce others. What's next for you professionally? How do you plan to further apply everything that you've learned to mm -hmm. world systems, American systems? 
How can you help us out of this? <laughs> oh, I must admit, I tend to very rarely have a grand plan for these kinds of things. I often respond to the opportunities that present themselves. I've worked with a number of different communities, organizations. I'll probably keep doing more of the same. <laughs> but it's, it sounds like that might be the best way to start. You've been around the world and you're bringing what you've learned right back to Virginia. <laughs> Correct. Correct. And what amazes me is how much when I look at the dynamics that are playing out in this particular county, how they are the fractal microcosm of what's going on in the nation as a whole. And through learning about this, I feel like I'm learning so much as well, because of course, it's my society as well. And I have my own perspectives. And when I get to listen to people who have very different orientations and why it is they care about what they care about. I'm like, oh, I get it. I understand. I can respect why you care about that. And so for me, even though I'm acting in this facilitator, advisor kind of role, it still feels I am a part of the society that I care about deeply. And yeah, trying to find some way forward. So hopefully that wisdom that I've been gaining through people's experiences is something we can share with others who are facing similar conditions. We started the conversation very broadly, globally, and we've now brought it back down to a person's own community and mm -hmm. family. How can someone who wants to work on this individually, personally within their lives, their relationships, their school systems, mm -hmm. their families, how can they contribute to a more peaceful resolution? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I think it takes a lot of bravery and imagination of figuring out where are the places where you are located? Who are the people that you can engage with across whatever divide it is that is coming up? Are there ways that you can invite other people in to conversations? I think that the doors are far more open than we might imagine because so many people have gotten so shut down, especially through the pandemic. And the courage of reaching out to less likely spaces, I think, has tremendous gifts that it can give to people who experience it. And as I said, that, that begins to empower a different kind of hopefulness. This is not to say that you shouldn't also be participating in whatever movements that you're affiliated with and in organizations, but I think that the notion that we can just, I don't know, sign an online petition or donate a check or make a comment on Facebook and feel like that is having the quality of engagement. I think we need to be more ambitious than that. I think we need to take the risk of engaging with others in a very human way in the first instance as a foundation, I should say, for everything else it is that we're doing, because that gives a different kind of quality to how we go about living our lives together. And this may be in the workplace, it may be in the family, it may be around the dinner table. But I think if we start with the notion of honoring and affirming the dignity of others and then saying, hey, how do we move out of this place of hurt that we have found ourselves in and do so with a degree of humility and love. I realize that's not going to be people in all cases, and in some places it would not be safe and healthy. But in those spaces where it might be, and I know everybody's got people in their lives or places in their lives that they can activate that in, 
So I encourage people to take that risk. Prepare themselves first. (laughs) Feel emotionally healthy. (laughs) And then go for it. Taking the risk to engage. What an excellent starting point. Catherine Barnes, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for sharing your expertise, Dr. Barnes. Come find the Better Conflict Bulletin at betterconflictbulletin.substack.com to subscribe to our free and weekly newsletter, including an edited transcript of today's conversation. If you have any feedback or suggestions for our work, find us on Twitter at better underscore conflict. We appreciate the time you spent with us. We'll see you on the next podcast. And remember that sometimes doors are far more open than we might imagine.